ultimately the Chicago Smith had a really lasting impact, right? They created this problem that other people had to contend with, right? This economized version of Smith and, and like it or not, you had to contend with that version of Smith for a really long time. And I still, I think many people still grapple with that today. Hello, listener, and thank you for joining us for another instalment of New Work in Intellectual History. As regular listeners will know, we are a podcast series produced by the Institute of Intellectual History at the University of St. Andrews. You can follow the Institute on Twitter, if you use Twitter, at St. Andrews IIH, and I must also note here that one of the Institute's journals, the History of European Ideas, is now also on Twitter at HEI Journal. And you can also find the Institute at intellectualhistory.net, which stores our large and increasingly large back catalogue of interviews, digitizations of primary source materials, and lots more besides. We continue our series of podcasts showcasing recent works in American intellectual culture this week by chatting with Dr. Gloria Liu. Hello, Gloria. How are you doing? Hello, Robin and listeners. I am doing great and really happy to be joining you here. Thank you very much. Now, Gloria is a lecturer in social sciences at Harvard University and the author of the recently published Adam Smith's America, How a Scottish Philosopher Became an Icon of American Capitalism. That's published by Princeton University Press. Came out in America in November last year, November 2022, and then last month in the UK, so January 2023. For those of you not in the Anglosphere, I don't know, but I'm sorry. As you note in your prologue, <laughs> Smith's inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations, 1776, is, according to the Open Syllabus Project, the 44th most commonly assigned book on American campuses. This is indicative of Smith's standing in the US, but I wondered if you could give us a sense of, uh, yeah, how he came to be, what the book's about, why is he so significant? Sure thing. And I want to unpack that statistic that you read off, right? The Wealth of Nations being the 44th most commonly assigned book on American campuses. That's data collected from the Open Syllabus Project, which you can peruse online. You know, by comparison, Smith's first published work, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, is somewhere down in the hundreds on that list. And I think the other thing, you know, even as rough as these indicators are, they're far from being perfect indicators. But I think the most interesting thing about that is that the majority of places where the theory, where sorry, the wealth of nations is assigned is in economics courses um, or courses related to economics. And I think that that really um, underscores Smith's reputation as an economist above all else, right? Not this enlightenment moral philosopher or as the wonderful intellectual historian Nicholas Philipson once called him an ambitious social scientist of the Scottish Enlightenment. Certainly in the public imagination, Smith's is Smith stands for, right, classical economics, free markets, <laughs> the invisible hand, self-interest, the virtues of markets and the vices of government intervention. And I really wanted to investigate, right, why did Smith get that reputation? Um, you asked for a really quick overview of what that book is about and why it might be different from our expectations. Um, the Wealth of Nations is a book about economic life. It's about how we meet our needs, what is it about human nature that spurs us to improve our condition, to exchange with one another, to pursue our self-interest? And it's also a book about political economy. Um, it's about the institutions and the norms 
in the history of those institutions and norms and laws, et cetera, that structure the economy, right? These norms and institutions that structure the way we meet our needs. And I think think about, um, if you think about the book being about those two things, economic life and political economy, that's quite different than if you opened up your, you know, Econ 101 or whatever it's called, Ec 10 at Harvard. <laughs> um, if you open your standard textbook today, you're not going to get the the kind of um, analysis that Smith presents in The Wealth of Nations. Um, national wealth, he says, is the product of human labor, and that productivity is a consequence of the division of labor. And he provides all of these illustrations of the power of the of the division of labor, the famous illustration of the pin factory, um, or he takes um, a very simple object, right? The ordinary woolen coat on the back of a day laborer. And he tries to get us to think about like how many people were involved in producing this everyday object. Um, and he really wants to show kind of the human work and the expansiveness of human labor and coordination that go into producing things that meet our needs. I think the other aspect of the wealth of nations that makes it so important, and I think answers your question about like why we so repeatedly turn back to the wealth of nations, is because Smith was revealing a new form of society and economy in the 18th century. He was interested in commercial society, this I this this new way of organizing society. Um, where the internal relations of its members are governed by exchange. People relate to one another based on exchange. They meet their needs by exchange rather than by you know, subsistence farming or relationships of hierarchical dependence and feudalism, for example. And Smith saw that this way of organizing society was uniquely capable of generating wealth, lifting people out of poverty, but also uniquely vulnerable to new forms of huge disparities in wealth and power. So, you know, he was really interested in not only why some nations are wealthy and some nations are poor, that's a perennial question. And you can find tons of scholars today who are still interested in figuring out the answer to that question. But he's also interested in how do you design institutions and policies that facilitate prosperity and human flourishing? while also preventing the already wealthy and powerful from oppressing the poor and powerless. So the fact that Smith is introducing these questions and introducing a way of seeing and answering those questions at the time he's writing, I think that he introduced those problems um, is such a radical invention. Right? He, he, he started a conversation that uh, won't go away. And that's why I think we keep returning to Smith. Thanks, fantastic. I suppose I'm interested in what you hope to achieve in putting this book together, because I got a sense that a lot of the sort of the, the study of the reception of a author and how they become canonical and then uh, how they're treated once they become canonical can have quite a, a uh, I don't like using this word, but problematizing effect yeah. on how you think about, about Smith. So yeah, what was the purpose Given everything you've just said about how significant he could still be and how important his ideas were in setting up certain conversations, um, what was the point of uh, putting this book together? Yeah, you know, it's funny that I, I have this instinctive response to your question that 
um, you know, oh, what I was hoping to achieve was to get more people to actually read Smith. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, truly, I'm not convinced that that's the primary goal. <laughs> um, of course, it'd be nice for more people to read Smith really seriously, but I'm not going to delude myself that uh, people are going to sit down and read The Wealth of Nations cover to cover or The Theory of Moral Sentiments, you know, or the lectures on jurisprudence for that matter. Um, you know, one of the one of the ambitions of the book is is really um, to get people to see that the ideas and the modes of reasoning, ways of thinking that structure our world today are subject to choice. They are products of of um of 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 different intellectual movements that are kind of historically and culturally contingent and that we can change them and that they often have been um subject to critique and can still be subject to critique right so if you disagree with the free market version of smith there are resources for you both within smith but also outside of smith for you to challenge those ideas um and and related to that, I think I really wanted to show and understand for myself, but also to show other other political theorists that, you know, the authors that we consider canonical are not kind of innately so, but they're made canonical <laughs> and yeah. that their status as canonical can and ought to be subject to critique. And when I say critique, I don't necessarily mean like taken off a pedestal necessarily, but but that um, understanding why they are considered of classic status, why they have been um, so instrumental to thinking about modernity, for instance, um, that is something that we need to constantly revise and think about if we think that they are still relevant to our thinking today. Um, specific to Smith, I think that, you know, the economic style of reasoning, as the sociologist Beth Potberman talks about it, um, realizing that the economic style of reasoning is is not value neutral <laughs> is, mm. um, to some people, quite shocking. But I think to many people, once they see it, kind of hard to unsee um, that the economic style of reasoning, um, which often is um, kind of tied to or appeals to Smith as its origin point, is something that's created, something we've been stuck with, and also something that we don't need to be stuck with. So I think those are all part of the ambition of writing this book. I don't mean to take us off course a little bit, but just to sort of play devil's advocate and push back on that. Sure. Um, why would Smith continue to speak to us when other political economists who use the same sort of language uh, uh, cease to be relevant? I'm thinking of uh, having uh, Brad Bell on the podcast at some point, who's been a recent yeah. biography, recently written a biography of Dougal Stewart. Dougal Stewart was a very, very prominent figure in the first half of the 19th century. Yeah. Right? Across the Western world, I think both of the Americas um, write in dear listener, if you uh, know differently, but that he was, you know, an outstandingly important figure and then disappears by the middle mm -hmm. of the 19th century. But Smith continues to be turned to, which suggests, just to be the, you know, the non-historian outsider, suggests that there might be something continually relevant there, something continually powerful about mm -hmm. uh, Smith's texts. 
what what would be the response to that? Right. So to rephrase the question, why Smith and why not other thinkers? Um, here's a starting point for an answer, and then it I will soon reveal that it's like a non-answer, which is that Smith has a kind of authoritative status. But I don't think that that authoritative status is given. It's something that we that has to be kind of like sustained, if you will. And and I wanted to know why Smith has that authoritative power, because uh, you know um, we can edit this out, right? <laughs> um, I wanted to know why Smith has that authoritative power, because um, it's fairly surprising that say even a hundred years after the Wealth of Nations is published, eighteen seventy six. Some readers, um, you know, readers of the Publishers Weekly in the United States vote it to be the best book on political economy a hundred years later. And it's it's tied with John Stuart Mill's work on political economy. 1876. That's astonishing if you think about it, right? Like what textbook mm. today is still going to be considered the best textbook in a hundred years? <laughs> <Ooh. laughs> um, and so so. I think it's worth interrogating, right? What are the grounds of that authority? Why does Smith get this founding father status? And the answers aren't obvious. And I think going through the history and figuring out why people think Smith has that authority can can give us part of the answer to that question. So that's a non-answer to your question, (laughs) which is to say, Smith has an authority which makes him more relevant or seem more relevant than other people who kind of fall to the wayside. But in order to understand the grounds of authority, we have to do a lot more historical excavation. Yeah, interesting. I think we might come back to that in chapter four because there's sort of a moment at the end of the 19th century, beginning yeah. of the 20th century, where he kind of um, fades into the background mm-hmm. compared to how he's used previously and then subsequently, which yeah. is interesting because there's the same thing happening with, when we spoke to Dara Senas in the last episode, similar thing happens to Locke. I thought it was interesting that what's going on yeah. in America in the late 19th century that means that these canonical authors are ceasing to be turned to as frequently as they were before, and then something will come again. Shall we? Let, let's dive into the book, and then I'll, I can derail us again later. So, the opening chapter examines how, during the founding era, Smith was seen by his sort of elite American readership, all the founders of Earth, as an important but not supremely significant figure within the Enlightenment science of human nature. You describe how Smith provided an array of concepts that are applicable to American efforts to create a new nation, as well as an overarching method for pursuing them. Can you run us through how Smith's late 18th century and very early 19th century American readers engaged with his thought? He doesn't, he's not sort of central to anything. He's one of many authors that they sort of turn to. But yeah, can you um, put some yeah. uh, questions on those bones? Yeah, Smith is like one star in a large constellation of thinkers that American <laughs> readers are turning to at this time period. Um, so maybe I'll start with talking about the method, um, the method that's kind of in line with the Scottish and American Enlightenment sensibilities of this time that really condition how Smith is being read. So first of all, it's it's very empirical and very historical. Um Writers in the social sciences, including moral philosophy, but also politics and political economy, are modeling their disciplines after like Newtonian physics. Um, I love the quote from David Hume. I have it copied and pasted here just so I could refer to it and I'll read it and you can decide whether to keep it. But, you know, Hume says in in um, in one of his essays, um, 
I think it's of liberty and necessity, right? Mankind are so much the same in all times and places that history informs us of nothing new or strange in this particular. Its chief use is to only discover the constant and universal principles of human nature by showing men in all varieties of circumstances and situations and furnishing us with materials from which we may form our observations and become acquainted with the regular springs of human action and behavior. So what really stands out to me in that, and I think it so exemplifies the, the, the spirit of the Scottish Enlightenment and the American Enlightenment, um, is, is the use of um, general principles, right, and springs of human action, right, all these kind of um, images and, and words that evoke um, like Newtonian physics, right, that, that like the fundamental particles of the physical and natural world, humans can act in regular and predictive ways that help us understand under what situations they will behave some ways and under other situations will behave in other ways. And we want to understand that in order to improve our mental and moral worlds, right? That's the kind of spirit of, of the Scottish and, and, and American enlightenment in, in which Smith is being received. Um, it's this very human-centered an optimistic view of, of where people stand in history and that and that by understanding their world in this reason-based manner, they can shape it, right? And be kind of authors of their own history. And so with my kind of Smith is a star in a large constellation of thinkers metaphor, Smith isn't the originator of this thinking, but he's part of an entire intellectual movement, so to speak. And, and that really jives with how people like the founding fathers are reading Smith and thinking about America's place in the world and in history. Um, you know, to kind of give some specific examples of like what key concepts or ideas um, really get picked up and, re and, and used. Um, I would say stadial theory is one of them. Um, some people call this like the four stages theory of history. Um, Smith, again, not alone in articulating a version of stadial theory where um, human history and the kind of the progress of human society is understood to be, um, you know, starts off in hunter-gathering societies, and then we move to um, kind of nomadic and shepherding societies, followed by agriculture, followed by manufacturing and commerce. And Americans take this model and they ask themselves, where is America, right? Um, they're on the cusp of transformation. Are they going to stay kind of in the agricultural and pastoral stage, or are they going to become competitive merchants and manufacturers? And those two visions of where America is going to end up or how the country is going to develop, it's not just an economic question, it's a moral question as well. And I think, you know, Smith provides not only, um, um, provides language for understanding that vision of, of human history and development, but he offers um, different examples of the ways in which nations kind of actually play out in human history. I think more specifically with regards to political economy, the big question um, that Smith is, is asking in The Wealth of Nations, or one of the big questions is what is the origins of wealth? And this is especially important to American statesmen, people like Alexander Hamilton, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, people who are in charge of the new nation post-independence. And they're trying to ensure 
the country's political and economic independence, when they're thinking about how do we secure our economic and political independence? How do we repay our debt? And what size should the government be? They think really deeply about whether the source of national wealth is coming primarily from agriculture or primarily from manufacturers and commerce. And Hamilton has this idea, right, that national wealth can be increasing, can, can be increased by unleashing the productive powers of labor through specialization, right? That is straight from the wealth of nations. And in his report on manufacturers, he really does just crib <laughs> from the wealth of nations and says, right, like, unleash productivity um, through specialization. There are three reasons why, and they're the same three reasons that Smith lists on the division of labor, right? Workers' dexterity is improved, time is saved, machines increase efficiency. And, and this idea that he borrows from Smith, right, that promoting manufacturers doesn't inhibit the promotion of agriculture, but actually they go hand in hand, they increase as well. Um, so that's kind of one version of, of Smith being used as a resource and a guide for thinking about the trajectory of the nation. Another way, which I think is, um, it, it's one of my favorite examples because I think it's just really under-examined. Um, and I, I owe huge debt to uh, my uh, colleague, Luke Mayville, um, who wrote a book on this. Um, John Adams's use of hmm. Smith's theory of sympathy, especially sympathy with the rich, in his series of essays, The Discourses on Davila, 1790-1791, so exact same time that Hamilton is writing the report on manufacturers. And what, what Adam's uses of Smith really show is that Smith is providing um, a kind of theoretical insight into the nature of power. And it's a very different idea of power, right? It's, it's not just that sympathy with the rich leads to political corruption. <laughs> it's that that... that um, Wealth had this grip on the human mind, right? The way social power was rooted in the psyche by attracting sympathy and swaying opinion and setting what is fashionable. He takes that directly from the theory of moral sentiments. Um, so, the, you know, the way I put this in the book is that we get these these repurposing or reuses. Re, um, re is that a word? <laughs> we get these uses of Smith. In the, you know, if you want to call it the American Enlightenment, I call it the founding era, where you can see how Smith is really providing kind of the conceptual and analytic apparatus for Americans to articulate their position about where America should go, how the country should look like economically, politically, and also morally. And, um, they're using Smith as a resource. They're using his ideas, but they're not invoking his intellectual authority. He's not canon yet. I, I was one of the things. He's I not canon yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? um, so the storehouse is, you know, yeah, that's how you dip in, you get something out of him, you extract something out of him. You, you're not inheriting, you're not adopting a, a system of Smithian political economy. You, there are certain ideas that you are uh, utilizing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I'm interested with um, sort of the American Enlightenment. Um, sort of idea, just again, sort of I've got the, the uh, America's Philosopher book in my head as well, Claire's book, about, and then Caroline Winter's American Enlightenment's book from a few years ago. Yes, love The that idea book. of the um, American Enlightenment, I mean, it's a standard idea, so, you know, the American mm -hmm. Enlightenment being, okay, we're actually building a nation, so we're actually doing the stuff you're writing about, and this works and that doesn't work, and you're not, 
uh, that doesn't work. You're not practical enough. You've got your utopian inspective reasoning over there and your armchairs, yeah. and we're dealing at the cold face here. Um, whereas I got the sense with Smith that he was being used as if he was quite practical and had, you know, had pragmatic solutions to certain problems. I wondered, does that ring true with your um, sense of, you know, how Smith was being used? Yes, absolutely. I think that's probably the most straightforward way to describe how Smith is being read and used in the founding era. Very, very practical. Political economy is the science of the statesman or legislature. Um, I had one colleague, David Armitage, wonderful intellectual historian, say that, you know, the wealth of nations is basically an 18th century conduct book, but it's a conduct book for men. And it's a conduct book for like statesmen. Um, it's, it's meant to be kind of a practical guide for how you should be thinking about the sources of wealth and how you might prudently manage it, how, you, how to think about the sound principles of policymaking. Um, we haven't yet gotten to the kind of, um, you know, ivory tower thinking about political economy yet. And the same thing with the theory of moral sentiments. Smith wanted to make a contribution to this wider conversation about the origins of morality and virtue. Americans are reading it as a very practical handbook for kind of critical reflections on private virtue and how to kind of cultivate mm. morality and ward off vice. Um, but without a kind of um, didactic moralism, right? They're not, they're not reading it to be like, aha, and these are the five duties that I must adhere to. No, they're, mm. they're reading it to kind of understand the construction of their own mores. So it does serve a very practical function in that sense. Let's jump on to jump forward to chapter two then. Things begin to change. So he's sort of treated as one light amongst many. Um, you followed this up with sort of a chapter about the changing position of um, Adam Smith within the changing field of political economy. As political economy sort of becomes a distinct science in early 19th century America, as opposed to a sub-branch of, well, I've got, originally I wrote sub-branch of the science of the legislature, I don't mean that, do I? It's a sub-branch of moral philosophy. Political economy is a sub-branch of moral philosophy. Correct me in a second if I'm wrong there. Um, but then it's becoming its own thing, independent uh, and powerful. And then you discuss how Americans engage with Smith's Wealth of Nations, to quote you, in ways that not only shape the work and its author's wider reputation, but also define the parameters of a larger debate around the content, scope, and aims of the science of political economy. Yeah, can you unpack those developments for us, please? Yes, yes. Um, and please cut me off if I go on for too long. Um, so you're absolutely right. In this period, roughly, let's say, 18... 17 or so to through the 1830s and onward, um, political economy goes from being um, a branch of statesmanship and the wealth of nations as being a handbook for statesmen to being a science, the work of scholars and systematic knowledge production. Mm -hmm. And in that transition, American readers, writers, presidents of universities, people in traditional forms of power, are looking at the resources they have available, resources they have available, mostly treatises from Europe, including the Wealth of Nations, Ricardo, Malthus, later Jean-Baptiste, and deciding which of these works or which parts of these works work and can explain American circumstances or kind of can aid in understanding the peculiarities of American politics and political economy, and then kind of leaving aside what doesn't. 
So you get the kind of systematic and sustained critique and examination of a variety of sources, as well as the construction of homegrown political economy. Now, political economy still is a branch of moral philosophy for quite some time, but, but that means something quite specific. Um, it's not that political economy is considered like a branch of ethics necessarily, but, but this belief that studying political economy um, in this systematic scientific way was a form of moral elevation. It was instruction in one's duties as a private citizen and public servant. Again, keep in mind the people who are going to college and doing these things are white male <laughs> elite um, students who eventually go on into law or the ministry or probably um, serving in some form of government. And so it, you know, education and political economy really is seen as preparation for one's duties as a private citizen and also as a public officer. Um, and some of the debates that have merged as the political economy is really kind of coalescing is whether whether the science of political economy should be seen as a nationally specific thing or um as as um the german political economist um friedrich list <laughs> um as the, as the german political economist friedrich list had it kind of cosmopolitical right like universalizing in some sense and you have a you know, the emergence of different schools of thought within America, some who think that, you know, political economy is this kind of universal discipline and has universal principles very much in that like Newtonian um, ethos. And others who think, no, 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 like political economy is all about the kind of national um, character um, and, and kind of like protection of national interests that are very historically and culturally specific. So what works in England or France isn't going to work um, in America. Um, one of my favorite um, early textbooks or treatises on political economy is from this man named Daniel Raymond. And, and I think he really exemplifies kind of the use of Smith as like a straw man in this early phase. Right? He says like, oh, well, Smith's system of like, this universal political economy is basically a system of no restriction or legislation. And it's absurd. And he, and he says that Smith failed to see the need for like strong, righteous government. And, and so what I think you see in these early critiques of Smith, but also like the early proliferation of new textbooks, as well as the kind of um, um, crystallization of like a, 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 um, a clear format for teaching political economy, right? like production, consumption, exchange, and then mm -hmm. kind of like history of ideas is, is you get patterns for evaluating um, the scientific merits of a text, as well as the kind of like political readings <laughs> of different versions of political economy. Um, so maybe just to kind of back those two claims up on the one hand right in terms of kind of how do you how do you evaluate the scientific merits of a new treatise on political economy political economy at this stage is still very young hasn't turned to math yet it <laughs> hasn't turned to statistics or like formal modeling and and it's really about like rhetoric style composition structure illustrations and smith is is seen as standard setting in this regard um even in reviews up until like you know the 1840s or so people who are reviewing new textbooks or treatises on political economy say like, oh, well, 
how does this match up with Mr. Smith and the Wealth of mm. Nations, which we still think is a standard setting book. So even if Smith's um, conceptual or theoretical contributions are seen as kind of outdated, he's still seen as giving kind of scientific form and, and, and doing something really important and adding value to the conversation on like what political economy should look like and how you should teach it. Um, so is he, sorry. But it, yeah. So he has been canonized at this point. Has he been turned so he's been turned into the father of political economy? Has that sort of happened? Yes. Yeah. You certainly just That's exactly where I was gonna... and then yeah, sorry, after you. Yes. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's exactly where I was gonna go next. And you just beat me to it. And it's much more concise when you when you say it, right? Which is that like all of this means is that like Smith becomes the agreed upon founder of the field. And and the wealth mm. of nations kind of gets this founding text status. Is he, does that development happen because uh, university professors working in this field have to defend what they're doing, have to justify what they're doing, eking out some space within a university education? Is that what they're doing? Or is it, are there other reasons for why they're turning, they're, they're positioning Smith as sort of the originator of the discipline? That hits very close to home. <laughs> Aren't we all constantly justifying what we're trying to do? <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think that's definitely part of the reason. But I think the other reason is that political economy is a discipline that's seen as kind of essential for statesmanship still, right? It's it's not exclusively just the, the craft or the art of somebody who's already a politician, but it's seen as kind of necessary education for somebody who wants to become a statesman. So, so it still hasn't quite separated it from a kind of formative project in politics. There's a direct connection to what you should be doing with your education in political economy. Um, so that I would say is the other reason, right? That like very much in these um, professors, um, typically, the the professor who is teaching the course on political economy is the president of the university, right? And and he kind of has this um, responsibility to teach seniors, right, what their duties are before they kind of go off into the world and 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 lead the nation, if you will. Hmm. So, so I think that your your next chapter sort of continues uh, continues the theme set up what we've just been talking about. So there was a series of developments in like the final third of the 19th century where, well, I appreciate we're skipping over a lot, and please draw us back if you want to. Um, no worries. Developments you sort of point out is that the separation of political economy from moral philosophy begins to happen in the second half of the 19th century. Then there's also the, the growing specialisation within academic political economy. And then mm -hmm. there is also an increasingly vigorous debate about uh, the nature of the scientific quality of economics or political economy and how that relates to social reform all of these things are going on there's lots of developments that you could see smith's position being altered perhaps diminished but mm -hmm. he continues world of nations sort of um retains its sort of standing <laughs> it's a story of to quote you here of continuity and resilience amidst uh, amidst rapid change What's going on to sort of to build continue the the things we putting up, actually putting up those. So what's going on in the second half of the nineteenth century? Yeah, great question. Um, I'll add a little bit more detail to some of those trends, and sure. um, 
And then I'll kind of say more about like, why is Smith so peculiar in this period? So yes, as you said, the, you know, political economy separates from moral philosophy and it starts to begin, you know, it starts, it's, it starts becoming economics. Um, you get increased professionalization of the discipline. There's specialization. So what that means in practice is that rather than having a kind of like single course on principles of political economy, you start having more specialized courses on things like tariff history and railroad management, and, you know, bimetallism and the economic conditions of workers. Um, and you also have a growing influence of rival schools of thought. So before this period, most of the sources and the theories are coming out of England and France. And then you have the homegrown political economists. Um, Francis Wayland is one of them. Elements of Political Economy, I think 1838 is like the most popular textbook for many, many decades. But then by the 1870s, you have cohorts of American economists who go study in Germany and then come back and bring the influence of the German historical school back to the United States. And, and they bring this really strong kind of historicist sensibility back to economics. And many of them are branded as socialists, right? Not, not socialists like Soviet style command economy, but like socialist in the sense that like the unit of analysis is society as a whole, like the organic social whole, not like individual atomistic econs. So all of that together um, amounts to kind of a, um, a, a moment in which Smith is simultaneously receding into the background because he really doesn't matter that much anymore, especially if you care about railroad management right, or tariff <laughs> history or the economic conditions of workers under industrialization. Smith is not relevant to the practical concerns and questions mm -hmm. that economists in America are asking, but he still has this like halo around him, right? He's still considered the founder of the science. And so for these broader methodological questions about like, what is economics and what should it be doing, right? Should economics be a deductive science um, where we kind of um, start with a priori principles of human behavior and arrive at kind of general theoretical insights? Or should economics be this historical, inductive, right? More German <laughs> um, mm. science where we, we have to look at the kind of history of laws and institutions and, and have an ethical orientation towards solving social problems. I think that's the bigger set of questions where, where Smith is thrown into some relief. And, and that conditions the way in which, especially the kind of new generation of thinkers, um, I talk about Richard T. Ely and E.R.A. Seligman, um, they return to Smith because they're reading Smith not only through their own historicist lens, but they see Smith as a historical thinker himself, right? Who was also sympathetic to the labor movements and they're trying to rescue him from, from kind of laissez-faire reductionism. So, so the late 19th century is so interesting to me because, again, on the one hand, Smith seems totally not relevant. <laughs> um, and at mm. the same time, we get this period of, of, of kind of deeper and uh, more sophisticated historical scrutiny of Smith as a historical subject. Mm. We jumped forward a little bit. Is that, is sure. that sort of process? No, I, I, was, uh, I was asking, is that the process that sort of begins the kind of um, refinement and sort of the nuancing of uh, readings of Smith. That's sort of the very end of the 19th century. Is that yeah. right? Can or, I add one yeah. more thing? Yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 Uh, one more thing to that, you know, part of the like 
reason that the late 19th century is also interesting is because new stuff is discovered about Adam Smith. Right? The lectures on jurisprudence are discovered. The first set mm. of student notes that belong to the lectures on jurisprudence are the Smith's lectures on justice, police, revenue, and arms. And this sparks new conversations about what Smith was up to when he formed his ideas for the wealth of nations and just how novel Smith was as an economic thinker. What's interesting is that some of the some of the stuff that I found about American commentators reading the lectures on jurisprudence is that um, one man in particular, William Caldwell, who I, I could hardly find any information about him, but I just I had to talk about it because it was so interesting to me. Um, unlike a lot of other commentators at the time who were really focused on the lectures on jurisprudence, kind of proving Smith's originality as an economist. Caldwell reads the lectures on jurisprudence and says, oh my God, Smith is a, is a political theorist. He's an original mm -hmm. political theorist who saw the need to study kind of um, political thinking historically um, in this long tradition of jurisprudence and who rejected social contract theorizing. And that's a really unique orientation towards modern politics and the modern economy. And you read his review and you go, oh my God, like, that's what Paul Sager is arguing like in 2022. I'm sure Paul knows, but um, you know, that, that, <laughs> that reading of Smith, I was astonished to find that review, mm. frankly, um, because it was so out of sync with how Smith had been read for so long and um, really showed a kind of, uh, uh, the possibilities for reading Smith differently in this moment and then get kind of like completely overshadowed by right like neoliberal Smith. Mm. It's interesting so there's sort of this, I don't know whether it could be the right way to describe it there appears to be like sort of a generation I want to go back to the free trade debate and like Smith's position in yeah. the free trade debate in a second but just to sort of uh, finish on this, uh, the point you were just making it seems, to, is there like a generation like the 1890s through to the 1920s maybe before the Chicago school sort of turns up uh, in force, that um, Smith's reputation becomes, and I'm quoting you here, he's increasingly seen as a knotty, multi-dimensional, complex figure. <laughs> he's had, uh, you know, in the middle of the 19th century, this sort of been simplified, uh, I'm going to talk about that in a second, but sort of used to score points. And then there's a little moment of a couple of decades where in response to, you know, um, lectures being discovered and, there's other developments going on, but he's, you know, being treated with more precision and nuance before. Is that sort of a yeah. fair kind of... Yeah, I think so. And and also to just add a little caveat to that, that like the really complicated treatment um, is quite limited. Like, as in, there aren't that many people <laughs> who, okay. yeah. who might have been exposed to that version of Smith, right? Like, this is very much contained um, within and among social scientists, academicians who can publish and review publications around Smith, um, not people who are publishing New York Times bestsellers in the 1870s mm. um, where, you know, Jane and John Doe are, are reading um, Smith in this way. If you look at newspapers or kind of the congressional debates that get republished in newspapers, the like really popular version is still that like Smith, the apostle of free trade. Mm. Um, but that doesn't, 
I think I, I think that's still compatible with this idea that like there was this moment among intellectuals reading Smith, people who had the occasion to read and write about Smith in this kind of professional knowledge production way, had a really, um, really nuanced version of him. It's interesting. Let's go back then to the sort of um, Smith's role in the debate over free trade over with the date, sort of the, the long 19th century, should we say, in America, where he seems to be I'll, I'll clumsily try and summarise what I, I, one of the points I thought was interesting about this, which was once an author becomes canonical, both both sides or however many sides involved in the debate, they want to either align with or demonstrate that they are different to Smith, mm -hmm. but they all agree that Smith is worth uh, mentioning. So they all, you know, Smith is sort of deployed either to, you know, to, to score point against him or or uh, with him or for him what yeah so what's a, what's the sort of role of smith in that sort of what would you say sort of wider political debate political culture when he's being used when he's being cited and quoted and so on uh what are people doing with him because it's not the very nuanced um sophisticated right. analysis right so what's the right what role right. does smith play yeah so smith has become a political authority in the debates over free trade. And um, here I'm going to appeal to one of our favorite intellectual historians, Stefan Collini here. He has this um, <laughs> great, great um, schema, as I've called it, uh, about kind of like what makes a thinker a classic thinker. He, he talks about John Stuart Mill, but I think that um, it's very apt for talking about Smith's kind of canonization process. So, um, mm. you know, first the, the author is uh, like a living resource. And I think we showed that with how Smith is being used as a very practical resource in the founding era. Then, um, you know, that then the thinker becomes a kind of um, a thing or, or, or like a leader uh, who has disciples, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. discipleship is established, right? People begin to identify with the thinker as like a follower of Smith or opposition to Smith, right? That's the process of kind of making Smith into the founder of political economy. And you suddenly have systematic critiques being produced, patterns are established for understanding whether somebody is like a follower of Smith or not a follower of Smith. But the real transition that I think is pivotal both in Collini's model and I think also for understanding what happens with Smith and the kind of politics of free trade is when they become an authority. And this is different than just being like, oh, I have a bunch of disciples because, because like kind of political authority signals a broader cultural relevance as well, right? Like the yeah. fact that Smith is appearing in newspapers, um, that there's, there's um, a uh, a 100th anniversary of the Wealth of Nations dinner at Delmonico's restaurant in New York City, where like the New York Secretary <laughs> of State, I think, and like, you know, William Graham Sumner and all these journalists are there and they're each giving toasts to the Wealth of Nations, right? Like mm. suddenly Smith has become a kind of cultural icon as well as a political mascot. And, and, and that really drives home this idea that the wealth of nations is a book defending free trade. Mm. Um, and so he kind of becomes whittled down to just like Smith equals free trade. Um, and the thing with authority, it, the thing with Smith's authority in that way um, that I think makes it really peculiar, but also reinforces the idea that he's an authority is that 
people who are in the opposition, right, those espousing protectionism or what in the kind of earlier antebellum decades would have been called the American system, um, still have to contend with Smith's authority, right, even if to openly refute it. Right. So they'll say things like, I have read all these great political economic thinkers um, and, and I don't dispute that they're very wise, but even the apostle of free trade, Adam Smith himself said, the home market is the most important of all markets, right? So they're, they're quoting Smith and appealing to his authority in order to delegitimize the policy of free trade. And so I think that really shows that, you know, the authority is available on both sides of the debate and kind of reinforces this larger kind of cultural status. You think that many of the people, many of the politicians involved in these debates had actually read it? But I sort of wonder whether you could, yeah. you, you reduce the Wealth of Nations down to a series of bullet points. You can go in, you can deploy that, uh, his name as an authority and so on. Yeah. There's not a serious engagement with, that's the question, right? Is, is there, do you get evidence yeah. of serious engagement with the ideas yeah. as opposed to the authority yeah. figure said this and I can cite that and then you've got to mm -hmm. concede the point mm -hmm. to me? Yeah, so I think early on, like 1820s, 1830s, you do have much more serious engagements with Smith. Like, and, and you see, and you see legislators who are more willing to be like, you know, I'm not so sure. Like I read all this stuff in Smith. They'll even quote long passages from the wealth of nations. Mm. And they really try to work through the logic, right. That Smith spells out or, or they'll kind of quote Smith and then say like, well, what we actually see in history, if we look at the example of Spain, is that it actually doesn't really play out the way that Smith had predicted. And so they're willing to concede some, um, you know, ambivalence or uncertainty, but but they're kind of treating Smith in earnest. Um, and and they, they, they read him quite seriously, I think. By the like post-Civil War period, the tariff becomes much more of a like partisan, um, um, what's the word it, it becomes like the most divisive partisan issue mm -hmm. and so it really just becomes kind of a proxy for are you a democrat or are you a republican and and less about the substance or the logic of of free trade or protectionism and more just about like digging your heels in and 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 holding the party line and that's mm -hmm. when i think you know when people are invoking smith they're really just paying lip service and not engaging with the content of the ideas and more just appealing to his authority to score points. Interesting. I think we need to jump forward a little bit, just looking at the time, uh, jump sure. forward a little bit to sort of, I, I think, maybe don't mind me saying, I, I, the, the chapters on the Chicago School, I took to be sort of the centerpiece of the book, or, you know, um, <laughs> maybe the most controversial or provocative uh, bits of the book. So, in response to the New Deal and sort of uh, the policies of the New Deal era, um, advocates of market societies are, to quote you here, forced to reconsider assumptions about market processes and to reimagine the political and social possibilities of their time. As they did so, they transformed Adam Smith into the unmistakable face of free market politics in America, and especially in the hands of George Stigler, and Milton Friedman into, so quote, into an American icon. Where does the, so I'm going to do the, the very genetic ones, I'm going to dive in a bit yeah. more, more precise afterwards. Um, the two plates spinning here, 
Uh, can you introduce our listeners, if they need to be introduced, to the Chicago School and Smith's position within it? And given the, I mean, this is a cliche I used in my teaching the first time I taught the wealth of nations, the accusation against the Chicago School is that they created a myth with Smith. You mm -hmm. know, they put up the photo of Wilhelm Friedman with this Adam Smith tie on and so on. Yeah. It's our job as intellectual historians to rescue Smith. Given that's a bit of a cliche, what's new about your analysis? What, what, why do you think it was important to go back to what the Chicago School did to Adam Smith? Yeah, well, thank you for setting up the question in the way that you did. Um, so let me start with the first one, kind of what is the Chicago School? So you know, conventionally, the label of the Chicago School designates um, Chicago as an intellectual school of thought in economics, commonly associated with a kind of free market fundamentalism, if you will. But, you know, I'm really adamant that it's not just this, this political ideology. It's um, it really stands for a methodological orientation, um, a, a kind of dedication to neoclassical price theory, anti-mathematical formalism, and especially in the post-oppression era, and anti-Keynesianism. Um, it's, it's quite heterodox in its early years, um, especially after the Great Depression. And I would also say very heterogeneous, right? You, you um, one, one scholar described it, I think it's like a mixed bag of scholars, like, uh, doesn't quite have the same kind of coherency that um, most people associate with the Chicago school. And, and mm. um, in the 1920s, 1930s, even the professors who are there don't even call themselves part of the Chicago school. And later on, they'll say like, I didn't even know I was a part of a school. <laughs> Surprise mm. to me. In any case, um, you know, what, what unites kind of the early Chicago school, and I'm particularly interested in these you know, heavyweights, Frank Knight and Jacob Viner, is a hostility to the New Deal order. Um, and also an uncritical, um, um, or sorry, a a, a a a very kind of cautious embrace of free markets. Um, and so what they do is they kind of recover Smith as a cautious defender of free markets, and at the same time, a model political economist. So they are much more willing to engage with Smith as somebody who is um, bound by his time, that is responding to the problems of the mercantile system in the 18th century, not somebody who was kind of advocating, you know, post-industrial laissez-faire, no-holds-barred competition, um, but, but somebody who was very cautious and sensitive to the demands of his time when advocating for what he called the system of natural liberty. Jacob Viner was one of the kind of most foremost commentators on Das Adam Smith problem, right? And kind of wrestled with the compatibility between Smith's view of sympathy in human nature and the theory of moral sentiments and also self-interest in the wealth of nations. And um, Viner saw Smith as a very eclectic political economist, very balanced, tempered, good, well-tempered thinker. That's, hmm. I, I'm thinking of like well-tempered, clavier right that's not not all what i mean but like <laughs> like i kind of had like um yeah just a good temperament um mm -hmm. if you will um and so that that kind of early chicago sensibility of smith as an early theorist of price a model political economist and somebody who was a cautious defender of free markets um kind of becomes a um 
a through line to the newer school, the later generation. Again, I'm talking mostly about George Stigler and Milton Friedman. Um, Friedrich Hayek makes a brief appearance, but kind of just for, for shorthand, the post-war period, um, we start to see the foundations of the more familiar Chicago school version of Smith that often is the like the target of a lot of Smith scholars today, right? That mm. like Smith is the beginning of scientific free market economics. They have this much more vocal and one-sided free market advocacy. And it's much more absolutist in its tone, right? That like no other possible Smith could exist and that there's like no other way to organize society and the economy um, other than through deregulation and the kind of proliferation of free markets, um, because it's it's markets that enshrine human freedom and, and freedom of choice. Um, so, so we definitely see a distinction between the kind of later and the older version of the Chicago School Smith. I'm sorry to interrupt. Can I ask that? I was interested. We had Jake Soul talk about his uh, free market oh, yeah. uh, of an idea book um, two episodes back. And one of the things I asked him, and I wonder whether uh, your chapters on the Chicago School might um, have material or you know, made you think about this question. So, there, there's, to my mind, there is a, the, the Cold War context is very yeah. important. So the yes. question, the, the question was going to be: Is the Cold War context fundamentally important? Because you, you've got to develop a very coherent, um, easy to understand defense about what American capitalism is in opposition to Soviet communism. Uh, is it something like that? I imagine the, the answer is always going to be: It's more complicated than that. But is it something like that, or is it the Chicago? Uh, economists realizing they are on to a very powerful set of analytical tools that they really push the discipline forward and they have insights that no one else has. Is it, like, is it kind of like a, a narrow disciplinary advance or is it the sort of big civilizational battle that they see themselves as being engaged in? Yes, it's both. And I want to say it's both <laughs> in this particular way, right? Where like that narrow methodological innovation that Chicago sees itself doing is taking place against the backdrop of that larger civilizational battle. And Chicago really wants to be at the helm of like steering the American ship of state, right? Towards protecting mm -hmm. freedom. And they have the analytical tools to do it. Um, and, and I think, you know, Smith, not only still has this halo around him, but if you're going to compare, um, you know, great thinkers and and you need to kind of do combat with Marx, <laughs> Smith is this like viable alternative, right? He's he he can stand for kind of um, not just Western civilization, but Western liberal capitalist civilization, mm. and and I think becomes this important device not only for the Chicago's analytical tools, but that wider kind of cultural authority as well. It does make me more sympathetic to Milton Friedman and Stigler when you think those <laughs> terms. When, when you you know you sort of unintended consequence. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's it, given what they were trying to do. If that is what they were trying to do and what they were trying to defend, that makes what how they reread Smith more intelligible, I suppose. Can we yeah, jump in, yeah, jump into that... what, how they do read Smith and what, what is it that they do to, I keep on saying you do, <laughs> um, how, how yeah. do they read Smith? What, what's the, uh, can you summarize sort of the Chicago reading, the Chicago Smith? Yeah, so I gave part of the answer earlier, you know, there's kind of an older version of the Chicago Smith, which is like, mm -hmm. 
Smith is an early theorist of price. Smith as this model political economist. Um, and, and then the later Chicago School Smith, which I think is the more familiar one, that is the target for a lot of Smith scholars today, or at least was the target for the early wave of revisionist scholarship today. I'll explain that one a little bit more because I didn't get to earlier. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that later Chicago School Smith really um, digs into the idea of rational self-interest as being the like central behavioral um, feature of, of human society, um, that it has like the most explanatory power, or as Sigler described it, uh, George Stigler described it as kind of Newtonian in its universality, right? That like humans are um, self-interested and kind of like act on their rational self-interest. And this is how we can explain social and economic and political outcomes. Um, although politics, he kind of bracketed as well. Um, the other thing that the Chicago School, especially Milton Friedman, um, leaned into was this idea of the invisible hand. Um, the invisible hand, not only as a social theory of unintended consequences, right, that by um, that individuals pursuing their own self-interest could, without intention or direction, um, promote the public good, right? That's a kind of general social theory of unintended mm -hmm. consequences. But but for Friedman especially, it, it stood for how prices could coordinate the activity of millions of people in a free market. And that that was a guarantor for individual freedom and had to be protected from government tyranny and intervention, right? So we start to get this view that like the invisible hand is the realm of freedom, a market choice, and that government was coercion and interference and tyranny. And, and that's where we get this view, I think, of Smith as super pro-market, super anti-government. And, and that's, to put it lightly, really pushing it, <laughs> if you will. Um, mm. And at the same time, what I think made Friedman such an effective communicator of that idea was not only did he have access to these huge public platforms, right? Writing countless Newsweek columns or writing for Time Magazine and giving lectures all over the country. You know, being on this smash hit television program, Free to Choose, mm. with absolutely no pretense of being kind of politically neutral, master communicator, was that he really brought Smith's ideas down to earth and right or wrong, disagree or agree with Friedman's politics. I really think he... Um, had a lot of power in propagating that version of Adam Smith. And that became so powerful and influential, not just for academics, right? Because a lot of what we've discussed till now has been like, how did these niche academics debate <laughs> Smith and their various reviews in these early economic journals? Yeah. But now suddenly Smith is being pushed out into the public imagination. He so is, that is, yeah. That's another major turning point in my story. I do think that Milton Friedman was one of the most able political communicators I have. Well, I you know, didn't see action, but you know, watched videos of. I also yeah, like yeah. the free to choose, free to choose. Like each episode, he, he does the bit where he's on location, and then they yeah. retreat back to the academics having a debate, and then he just sits back yeah. and lets them lets the children play, and then as the <laughs> adult comes in and goes, "You are all wrong. This is the answer." In very sort of precise, yeah, and sort of yeah. Very he's so some, good. Yeah. He's very, he's very um, good at his job. 
yeah. I suppose uh, was was uh, Stigler or Hayek as successful in that kind of um, you know creating a, a story, or creating a myth around Smith? Were they as potent as public intellectuals as Friedman was? Not as potent as public intellectuals. Well, well, debatable. Hayek certainly with the road to serfdom. Um, but, you know, he fell out of favor with the American public pretty quickly, unfortunately. Right. I think social, I think in terms of social theory, I think Hayek's version of the invisible hand is probably closest to what Smith was trying to say. But that's kind of neither here nor there. Um, Stigler, um, you know, his uses of Smith, and this is a contrast I really draw out in the book as well. Like Stigler talked about Smith a lot in his peer-reviewed academic publications and his like lectures for the AEA. So so Stigler really saw Smith as kind of contiguous with his own academic agenda. But he wasn't so much in the business of being a public intellectual. That that's where Friedman, I think, is is very different. Like both of them have the the academic credentials as these award-winning economists, very respected in their field, innovators, eventually Nobel laureates. But Friedman's much more of the, the public intellectual than than either Stigler or, or Hayek. Mm. Are there any other aspects of uh, the Chicago School on, on Smith that we should delve into before I jump over to the sort of the criticisms? I feel like there, there are things with like Stigler's <laughs> criticisms of Smith on politics. And politicians were not going far enough into, um, yeah. you know, self-interested yeah. politicians. But yes, yeah. Any yeah. any other bits that we could we could uh, touch on briefly? Yeah. Well, I, you raised the question of kind of like <laughs> why why re-examine the Chicago School myth mm -hmm. if it's so if it's been so thoroughly disproven, right? Like why reopen it? And um, it's interesting because. Um, as I've written this book and as I've been kind of like uh, seeing the reception of it, I I have a mix of reactions to the Chicago School chapters. Like <laughs> on the one hand, some people are like, oh my God, like look at what the Chicago School did. <laughs> um, they, they're they're um, energized by a kind of historical treatment of that, that kind of proves the crimes of the Chicago school. Mm. And then there, there, then there's a group of people who are like, I don't know, maybe, maybe this is putting it in too strong of terms, but some people who were almost like offended that I tried to historicize the Chicago school, i.e. the people who wrote the review of the, in the wall street journal. Mm. Um, and, and that like my, my treatment of the, of, of Chicago was too critical and then there are people who were like, oh my gosh, I could never have treated the Chicago school people as charitably as you did, <laughs> right? because it's clear that they are so wrong. And mm -hmm. so, so it's been interesting to kind of see the different reactions. And I'm I'm by far not the first one to have re-examined the Chicago school and the Chicago school versions of Smith. Or you have Jerry Avensky and Stephen Medima and um, Angus Bergen, oh, among others. Oh, who... Can we mention that there's a footnote where yeah. we've been able to recite uh, an anecdote, <laughs> which is our fourth hand now if I say it. But uh, yeah. well, the Jerry Avinsky submitted a article on Smith of the Journal of Political Economy right. in the mid-70s. I got a single line response from George Stigler saying, this is not the Adam Smith I know. And that's just the yeah. like, rejection gone, desk rejected on the basis of, yeah. no. So they yeah, gatekeepers as had, well. They kind of... Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, no, and I said this earlier that like it's this absolutist version of Smith that 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 emerges with Stickler and Friedman. Or like they're gatekeepers. They they want their version of Smith to be the only Smith. Um, and that that Eventsy story story was told to me by like at least two people, and I and I had to verify it because I wanted to include it, but you know, obviously it's just kind of a footnote. So I emailed Jerry, and then I emailed the two other people, and. And Jerry verified, he's like, I don't have the documentation, but that's a, that's pretty much how I remembered it. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, so so why should we go back and revisit the kind of creation of this myth, right? If Chicago's obviously wrong, and, and they're a very easy target, right? Like, like they're just these bombastic lines, like especially from Stigler, um, you know, the, the wealth of nations is the stupendous palace erected upon the palace, or erected on the foundations of, of erected on the granted of self-interest or okay, yeah essentially yeah yeah um and so so part of the reason is i think anytime we have a fight that that's that that's that's that big <laughs> mm. i think we always should look closer because i think that there's more to uncover than just proving or disproving what the Chicago school got right or wrong, right? Mm. I'm, I'm less interested in proving that Chicago was wrong and more interested in the forces that made them do what they did and that threw Smith into high relief. And so that's why I try to spend so much time drawing out things like, oh, the kind of Cold War context, the kind of questions and the anxieties that people had very generally, but also these kind of big methodological questions about the kind of economics that Chicago is doing, right? Because then I think it, then then we start to understand why Smith was such an appealing and powerful figure to latch onto, because ultimately the Chicago Smith had a really lasting impact, right? They created right. this problem that other people had to contend with, right? This economized version of Smith and, and like it or not, you had to contend with that version of Smith for a really long time. And I still, I think many people still grapple with that today. So mm -hmm. I think it kind of behooves us to understand, right? Like why did that happen? What were the forces that drew them to Smith? Not just here were the different versions of Smith or, um, you know, Smith is obviously kind of a myth in the Chicago or the, the Chicago school is, is, is a myth. Um, and I think the other the other reason why I really wanted to interrogate the Chicago school more is is this bigger story that like like whether we like it or not, we've been we Anglo-American <laughs> people have have been um or kind of Anglo-American world rather, we've been enthralled with this invented version of Smith that's like bound up with neoliberalism and we've been guided by it. And and I think we should understand how those ideologies get crafted and, and how canonical thinkers like Smith get enlisted to do that work. Mm -hmm. I think one of the, just sort of now, joint, narrowly to a point about the practice of intellectual history or history of or whatever, uh, there's so much Smith scholarship, like good historical scholarship, has yeah. been uh, guided by, directed by non-historical interpretations of Smith. So like the invisible hand idea, that phrase will appears twice, yeah. is it? Once in Once uh, in the Wealth of Nations, once in the Theory of Moral Sentiments, okay. once in the essay on the history of astronomy. So three oh, times okay. total, but only once in the Wealth of Nations. And then it's turned into the absolutely archetypal idea about what Smith's about by Friedman and by Stigler as well. 
And then we spend loads of time trying and to... And other people, yeah. yeah. But then we spend loads of time trying to dis, you know, explain what he was actually doing. And it's all this really tiny... I always sort of think about Smith. I think I said this to Paul, we interviewed him last year. I can't think of an author, like a prominent author in HPT, who has so many small, like, so many concepts that actually are quite small that are blasted into huge ideas. Yeah. And then we spend <laughs> a lot of time going, well, da, 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 da. so, I mean, I mean, I know you used the four stages theory stuff earlier, but that also seemed like an idea that you could say isn't um, absolutely central to what Smith's doing. Paul's going off to commercial society as well at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> so, but they think, you know, the things that we keep on saying that he's about, because we're trying to link him to a conversation about uh, liberal capitalism, you know, they're yeah. not they're not there um, in the way that, you know, we, we repeatedly are, you know, forced into suggesting they are, you know, we have to uh, talk through them and historicise those things over and over. And it's like we've got very narrow, you know, focus is okay with uh, Smith scholarship. Anyway, rant over. <laughs> we could possibly jump, <laughs> over, uh, jump, on. <laughs> jump on to then uh, the sort of historicist, well, you know, the, the pushback against the Chicago school, which kind of begins in the 1970s, not that long after it's sort of become established, uh, you know, the company of Sweden becomes this absolutely monumental public figure when the pushback sort of begins. From both, I found this fascinating, sort of the neoconservative pushback, Erwin Crystal and Gertrude Himmelfarb, who are a couple, right? They're, they were yeah. married, right? Yeah. So they're their pushback, I don't need to go into detail about that because that feeds into a lot of current scholarship and, you know, um, I don't think there's an ideological yeah. link between them and current scholarship, but they no, but do it's set so a path. Resonant. Yeah. yeah, so let's come back to that in a second, but there's also the, you know, for the listeners of this podcast, the very familiar uh, set of, you know, John Grenville Agard, Pocock and Quentin Skinner and Donald Winch and, and so yes. on, they turn up in the 19th, well, they, you know, they start publishing things on related to Smith in the 1970s that fundamentally alter or automatically challenge the Chicago School. So yeah, pick one of those, the New Conservatives or the Cambridge School lot, and uh, how yeah. they change. All right, I'm going to be ambitious and 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 do both, but cherry pick from from kind of the the examples that I've given. Uh, this was a really tough chapter to write, by the way, because um, I knew I just had I had to contend with so much. But um, so like, let's take Donald Winch's very very famous right standard setting, Adam Smith's Politics, published in 1978. Winch, Duncan Forbes, um, Winch is in conversation with um, A.O. Hirschman, like they're both at the Institute for Advanced Study at the same time. Um, There are all these connections that I discovered and wish I had more time to dig into. But in any case, this is all happening with the rise of Milton Friedman. So it's it's almost happening in parallel as, as Smith is becoming this kind of like American capitalist free market icon. And suddenly there's a slow pushback. Um, and, and what Winch is trying to do in Adam Smith's politics is rescue him from what he thinks is the, what he calls the dominant liberal capitalist perspective, right? That's not just limited to Stigler and Friedman, but also a kind of, a, a, um, kind of larger trend among political and, and, um, political theorists maybe who, who kind of want to slot Smith into this like narrow liberal tradition and and Winch is trying to illuminate how Smith's political values had to be understood in the language that Smith would have used in his time, right? So this is where we get that like really Cambridge school sensibility in, in reading Smith, right? Winch says, you know, 
Smith's politics has to be understood in a language that is pre-capitalist, pre-industrial, and pre-democratic, right? So we shouldn't be using the words like liberal capitalist when we talk about Smith's politics, nor should we th be thinking about Smith's politics in terms of his like partisanship, but really more in, um, in, in terms of like how he thought about the nature of politics. What were the issues of his time and how did he navigate them? And and Winch is really the first to not maybe not the first of all time, but he's very, very careful in saying I'm interested in what Smith might have originally intended or legitimately like thought in his time rather than what he anticipated. Right? So he's very conscious, conscientiously separating himself from the way that like somebody like George Stickler is trying to read Smith, right, by saying Smith is my guy. He anticipated the kind of economics that I'm doing. And um, I'll add a plug for the the work you're doing at the Institute um, that, um, you know, I, I use some of the sources online, the correspondence between Donald Winch and Duncan Forbes in 1975, right? And, mm -hmm. and Forbes is helping Winch think about Smith. And, and Winch comes around and says, you know, like, I really don't want to get into the quote, labeling and bottling business. I don't mm -hmm. want to just rebrand <laughs> Smith. And, and Forbes is like, right, like Smith is too big of a thinker to be kind of labeled and bottled in these narrow ways. Like you kind of have to rethink the terms that Smith would have used in order to understand just kind of how complex of a thinker he was. So, so that's one strand that's happening in the Can I, can I just interrupt? I, just, I, just yeah. kind of, I came across this a couple of days ago, and I think it sort of um, exemplifies the space, the gap between what Donald Winch was doing and sort of uh, the Chicago school. Um, Thomas Sowell reviews Donald Winch's book. Uh, so Thomas Sowell is sort of a protege of Friedman and Stigler, mm. and he reviews it in one of the political economy journals, I forget which, and it's a very short review where he yeah. says something like uh, he spends Donald Winch spends 70 pages telling us what Smith didn't mean and then there are lots of quotes yeah. from <laughs> Dave, uh, David Hume and Francis Hutchison which are not relevant but then what he does say is quite interesting but he takes ages to get to the point and that's it and it's a very dismissive <laughs> short review but it's that kind of um, the history of political uh, history of econ economic thought history of political economy was being practiced by people like Stigler and Friedman and then Portugais like so uh, but it's such a different discipline to what Winch was doing that they weren't, I, I thought it was interesting about, you know, um, Winch couldn't talk to them. They wouldn't read. They couldn't hear he was trying what he to, was doing. Though. Like, that's the thing. It was like he was, he was, he was really valiantly trying to. <laughs> but um, such, but I suppose that that, 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 yeah. yeah. That soul review was just, it was strikingly, um, yeah, uh, he, he couldn't even make the leap into seeing where Winch was coming from, which is utterly dismissive of what uh, what he was doing in that book. It was, yeah, it was striking. I thought it really exemplified the, the chasm between them. But you know, I interrupted yeah. you. Please continue. No, 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 no. Thank you for adding that. Um, that that's that's a that's a really great illustration. Um, so the other strand, or one other strand that I that I talk about in this, you know, 
same period, late late seventies or so, is the kind of pushback on the Chicago Smith, not by trying to recover his politics the way Winch was or the way Ishtwan Hunt was, um, or A.O. Hirschman. Those are kind of the three figures that I talk about. Like, okay, if 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 the um, if the Chicago Smith really kind of like sucked the politics out of Smith, then then people like Winch are trying to kind of recover it in this really historically um, rigorous way. Irving Kristol and Gertrude Himmelfarb are really trying to like recover the morality, right? They're saying capitalist society doesn't just rely on markets alone. It needs morality. And by that, they really mean a kind of like neo-Victorian <laughs> traditional morality. And they think Smith's theory of moral sentiments provides that, right? They, they think that the theory of moral sentiments represents a, a, a tradition of thinking about morality and virtue that says that there are moral prerequisites for a healthy capitalist society, right? And these are kind of common sense notions of conscience and virtue, prudence and temperance, moral improvement, and that those had to be the underpinnings for a kind of a healthy capitalist society. I think Himmelfarb is especially interesting and I just really didn't get enough time to talk about her. Um, uh, but because she's not only a super, super serious historian, and she changed how many scholars viewed Smith and, and, and Smith's view of poverty. Um, but but she she one of the kind of like implicit implications of her work on like Smith on poverty and his his radical orientation towards the poor was that, you know, it, it kind of fell in line with her view that like, well, everybody has the capacity for moral improvement and helping one another and helping yourself you know therefore the expansion of the welfare state is kind of illegitimate um is, is kind of like one of the natural logical conclusions or one of the logical conclusions that she kind of wants to get at and, and end up with and um and i think that that's just a really um it's it's a, it's a complicated position um, hmm. Because on the one hand, she 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 and Irving Kristol did do some really important work by kind of trying to read the theory of moral sentiments and the wealth of nations as being relevant, <laughs> as being related to one another. And on the other hand, they had their own kind of, um, you know, neoconservative, formative agenda in mind that I don't think Smith would have necessarily agreed with, or or at least, you know, many contemporary readers might not agree with. So it's interesting to kind of see how um, resolving textual problems can lead to political implications that are, um, you know, still very contested. Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I suppose interesting, what I mentioned earlier, right, sort of that neoconservative position has now been reiterated, but not necessarily with the ideological or policy baggage that you just outlined yeah. by more recent scholars. I wonder whether we could finish then with, I mean, again, so it says, were we playing a drinking game? You'd only drink once, listener, but it's the moment where I <laughs> apologise to Glory and to you that we've had to skim over so much, um, which we had to skim over so much. This book has, it, it is dense with extremely interesting discussion. But I wonder whether we could finish with your sense of where we're at, where we're at now in terms of Smith scholarship and also Smith's wider status in um, sort of American intellectual life. He is the only 18th century economist I know that appeared in the wild. 
It's near his three. Oh, yeah, that's somewhere. right. Uh, Bell <laughs> is in his uh, flat. Right. And yes, Anastasia's World of Nations is on, the, is on the bookshelf. <laughs> Didn't get to include that in the book next time. <laughs> well, Locke was in uh, Parks and Recreation, so uh, yeah, I had to mention yeah. uh, Smith and the Wire. But yeah, where does Smith, um, yeah, where, where does he stand now? Where does Smith's yeah. scholarship yeah, yeah, yeah. stand now? Because I felt like with Paul's work and then with this book, we're kind of moving into, I mean, Donald Bridge talked about, you know, Smith's studies, I mean, to some degree of maturity in the 1970s. I don't, I don't know, it might might be something that's happening now. Um, that's my take, not yours. Uh, yeah, what, what, yeah, where do you think we're at? Where do you think Smith's at in 2023? So I think we're still trying to recover Smith's politics and Smith's morality. And I mean that in a couple of ways. I think we're still trying to understand um, Smith's politics so that we can claim him for one side or another. That's by no means new. That, in fact, defines much of the history of reading Smith, right? Everybody wants Smith on their side. So trying to recover Smith's political positions on, say, inequality or, um, you know, the role of business. I get asked on panels all the time, like, what did Smith think about business? <laughs> like, people want to know what side Smith is on. And that's by no means new. And that's an ongoing process. But the way in which I think Smith scholars are, are talking about that today is far more... Um, sophisticated, because we have just an abundance of textual resources and generations of scholars before us, you know, including Donald Winch and everybody after him, that we can draw on and, and work with. So there's that aspect. And then there's the kind of Smith's moral philosophy. Um, and this is interesting, too, because, you know, there's been a real interest in, in seeing Smith as, um, Smith's moral theory as a real serious challenge to Kantian philosophy, right? That like Smith gives us a version of morality that's that's grounded in sociability, that's grounded in, in society. Morality is a social thing. And um, kind of conversations in contemporary philosophy about like say the ethics of empathy are, are, are absolutely huge. And so I think that there's, you know, treating Smith as a philosophical thinker, um, is another defining feature of how we're thinking about Smith as a moral philosopher, but really as a kind of philosopher in the most rigorous sense of the term. Um, but I think there's also, and this is probably not surprising, especially because you've talked to Paul Sagar, um, there's still this search for a very usable Smith, right? Mm -hmm. And this is where trying to understand Smith's politics and his moral philosophy really collide. Um, I'm going to sound like a broken record, <laughs> but especially because you're going to read Paul in this and, and Paul and I share the same view and kind of arrived at it independently. Um, but, but like the, the kind of new version of the Adam Smith problem is, is like, is Smith or how is Smith both a moral critic and moral defender of capitalism to kind of put it very bluntly. And mm. what you get in that question is um, kind of a grappling with not only the consistency of the theory of moral sentiments with the wealth of nations, like everybody knows that, you know, you, you have to read the theory of moral sentiments and the wealth of nations. There's no Adam Smith problem. But this new version of the Adam Smith problem is really about kind of a moral reappraisal of capitalism itself, mm. you know, to kind of put it bluntly. We try to use the term commercial society because it's less anachronistic, 
but but I kind of think at the heart of this debate um, that we're seeing um, in so much of Smith scholarship is is you know can we defend capitalism on moral grounds and can Smith be a usable guide? And I think what's so interesting about that is not only every so let me just put it this way everybody wants to say that we want a more moral capitalism right everybody wants to say that people on the right say like ah yes of course we want a more moral capitalism and people on the left are like yes we need to make capitalism more moral what does that actually mean though (laughs) um you know you have people on the right who say more lines along the kind of neoconservative argument that 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 a more moral capitalism means kind of adhering to more traditional virtues and morality in which kind of market relations are nested. And that, um, you know, we don't really need to think about, the state shouldn't be in the business of promoting distributive justice because we really need just to have the right morality towards one another. Mm. On the left, you have this other version of a more moral capitalism that's that's more like oh well it it should be the obligation of the state to achieve the ends of a more just society by redistribution or predistribution or what have you right expanding the welfare state um and and those two visions of a more moral capitalism clash politically mm-hmm. and so i think that's the kind of version of the adam smith problem that um i'm interested in i think paul's interested in because it 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 shapes how we read Smith <laughs> and how we think about the relationship between these two texts, but also what we're trying to make Smith do for us, politically speaking. Mm. Find, so your sort of last couple of pages of the book, you finished on a note. Um, so yeah, we talked about this before we started recording, uh, and I'm not sure I have. I'm not sure I quite got the message at the end. So you can correct me as I as I ask the question. But a sense of uh, political debate, especially in America, has got confined by concepts and arguments that might be eventually, you know, the uh, beginning might be Adam with Adam Smith, and that it would be a good idea for us to set those aside, work out what we might want to think about contemporary political and economic issues and then perhaps go back to Smith. To do our thinking for ourselves is the phrase. You use that phrase mm. and then I thought you used that. It's sort of it's becoming quite yeah. prominent that phrase here and there. And I just wondered, yeah. you know, what mm-hmm. how do you think you know, what does that mean to do our thinking for ourselves? And then uh, where does us reading Smith fit into that? Yeah, so to kind of boil it down, I think there are two ways to go about reading Smith or thinking about what we're doing when we're reading Smith or reaching for Smith. Um, some Sometimes we read Smith to understand Smith better. We want to understand what Smith was up to, what were the questions he was asking, what was the language he was using, what was he trying to figure out in his time. And other times we want to read Smith to understand ourselves better. Um, We want to use Smith as a guide for our um, questions and problems. Mm. And I have no problem with either, but I do think that those are two very different ways of going about reading Smith. And especially in the latter case, it can lead to um, kind of compromising um, kind of integrity 
I mean, that's that's putting it too strongly. <laughs> Sorry, but you know, this is this is really tricky, and it gets into the, all these debates about like presentism and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I think it's worth reemphasizing that so much of the history of reading Smith and using Smith has been a history of like abusing Smith, mm-hmm. and and that that should. Um, reinforce the importance of doing the kind of work that scholars are doing in like the kind of really detailed historical and philosophical recovery of what Smith was up to. Um, But that doesn't preclude us, um, and I don't think shouldn't preclude us from reading Smith as a resource. But I think we also really need to be open to the possibility that Smith is going to is, is not going to be able to answer all of our questions. Um, I talk about this in another paper. Um, it's kind of outside of the book that I wrote after we finished the book, which is a little bit more fully articulated, right? Like we need to be open to the possibility that um, even as we have this impulse to reach for Smith, when we have a question about like inequality or capitalism, yeah. or racial capitalism, or um, you know, capitalism in the climate crisis or whatever, we want to go to Smith to see if he can provide us with guidance we have to be open to being disappointed because there's no way that smith can have answers for all of our contemporary concerns mm-hmm. what i think he can provide though is just a refreshing um alternative to different ways of thinking right think about how smith is answering questions in his time um rather than the content of the answers themselves kind of Uh, refracted through our contemporary lenses so I don't want to put Smith you know I don't want to bury Smith and say you know stop reading Smith altogether I think there's incredible utility in reading Smith just for the intellectual exercise of of grappling with a thinker who is so um who is so patient and careful and complicated but I also want to um caution um Mm -hmm. us from having that like knee-jerk reaction that for kind of like every political and economic crisis, intellectual or real, that we can go to Smith and that he'll have the answers. Mm. That's very interesting. I, uh, sorry, there's lots of things I would like to ask and uh, uh, we, we should Maybe stop. you'll have a better answer. <laughs> <laughs> we, we should stop. I was just interested in like the idea that there's something particular about American intellectual life where canonical figures have this kind of status because I can't think of a British equivalent. I'm sure listener will, the listener will go, I, I well, obviously this learned, or the other, but sorry, <laughs> I, I recently learned that the, the Adam Smith Institute, right, the, the man who founded it, got the idea when he was studying in America. <laughs> so mm. like, yeah, it's kind of an, it's, it's an American export. <laughs> All right, well, we'll have to bring you, uh, get you back on at some point in the future. What are you working on next? What's the, uh, what, what uh, does the future hold? Oh boy, is this gonna is this gonna get immortalized in the podcast? <laughs> yeah, you're committing um, now by saying whatever you're gonna say. You have to do it, and by the I, date that you I say have a it. Couple, <laughs> I have a I have a few great works on the anvil, as Smith said. Um, and if I'm lucky, I will have just enough to burn before I die, and nobody will ever know. <laughs> I see you're not mentioning any themes or any topics. Very wise. Okay, uh, Doctor Glory, uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me.